Hello and welcome to Two Wizards and a Mic, where a couple of really old people still play the game. And, uh, well, we like it, so bully to you. <laughs> uh, my name is Shane, and to my other side... I am Andrew. To my other side? What does that even mean? Sure. Sure. So today, uh, we're going to be talking about rules. But before we do that, there is a rule that we have to have an update on what is going on with the latest Kickstarter. All right. So Monsters of Feyland 2, this book right on my right shoulder there, the books, the printed books, the soft cover and hard covers are being mailed out to the Kickstarter backers. Nice. So uh, most of the people in North America should get them in the next three to four weeks or so. And in the UK, maybe two or three weeks, because actually there's a printer that we use in the UK. And then uh, other places will be a bit longer, depending, you know, depending on how, how quickly we move through this. Excellent. And um, the print on demand version, so the public can get this version of a printed ver book That'll be open probably next week at the latest, maybe even Friday. And um, the new Kickstarter, I was just telling Shane, the art is starting to come in. So we're hoping to launch that. It looks like it's going to be early to mid-March next month. So, um, yeah, we have to get the art done for that. The layout is, for the most part, done. Then we have to get some promo material ready for the Kickstarter, including a video. So, and then it takes about a week or so to be accepted um, by Kickstarter. So uh, hopefully that'll be early to mid-March. So the Kickstarter is rolling along. One's being sent out and the other one's almost ready to, to launch. <laughs> <laughs> You're like a machine now. You, It's like, as soon as one is done, the next one is already halfway done and is going out the door pretty soon after that. That's actually, that is pretty damn cool. Well, and of course, it is a skill that, you know, <laughs> has been honed over four or five years now, I think. Yeah, well, I just looked. This new one that's going to launch, that's our 10th. I can't believe it. And? Oh, my Lord. Okay, that. Okay. Yeah. Props. Everyone, clapping, please. Because... Everything that he produces can, of course, be purchased over here at Kwood Publishing, worldofmere.com. <laughs> that was, I was trying to get really deep there, but you know, it's, it's later in the day. What can you do? <laughs> but uh, so this week we are talking about rules. Uh, 5e as, uh, as a game is, it's, it's been around long enough. Previous editions taught 5e how to behave how about mm -hmm. how 5e could improve so we're basically playing with the most balanced the most uh refined uh beaten the rules have been beaten to death to make sure they're behaving and uh and it's pretty damn smooth when you're playing a game however uh there are some rules that uh, people don't necessarily use they they can skip them they can modify them which is encouraged by wizards of the coast it says in the in the book you know these are guidelines you know you could do a few things here and there 
Um, but of course, you know, we like to follow the rules to play, uh, to have, you know, to have the best experience possible. But uh, we've got some rules that mostly we agree on and some that we slightly don't. Uh, but there you go. Uh, the first rule, what is it? All right. Yeah, I think overall, um, as you said, the game is very efficient. It's a really well-balanced system for the most part. I think to make it more challenging and fun, you really need to make sure the monsters are tough. So I would usually use their hit. I would usually have their hit points at the average, like they do in the the monster books or our monster books, or higher. And I would get rid of all the really low, most of the low level encounters. And I would make sure that the because PCs in fifth edition are pretty strong once they get to even third and fifth level, they're decent. So I would always try to make the game challenging and, you know, yeah. And so that's one overall change I would make. Then, as you said, there's a number of things that you could skip or maybe they're actually useful. So the first thing that um, we're going to talk about is ammunition. So basically arrows for your bows and crossbow bolts for your crossbow even darts, if you have multiple darts, um, even like stones for your sling, uh, that, you know, that very popular weapon. Um, and in the game, you're, you know, you should be only using this ammunition you have. So yeah, I would actually keep this rule because I like the realistic element of it. Um, what I would change is that I have the players track it and I hope with the honor system that they do that. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> I think it makes it fun that um, you need to make sure that you've got the right supplies. And um, I think that's that's really at the beginnings of the game in, with dungeons and dungeon crawling. You really had to make sure how you were using your resources. So resource management is really a fun part of the game, I think. So I would keep this one. I, I agree on this one because uh, I think that it is far too easy for players who are, you know, most players are reasonable tracking you know, ammunition for different weapons that they have, the ranged weapons and whatnot. Um, but I find sometimes you might actually forget in the heat of the moment where, uh, say, say for example, like the, the, the DM says, oh, hey, the creature is currently having... Uh, it looks really beat up. It's bleeding or it's lost an arm or whatever it might be. And in the heat of the moment, you're like, oh, I'm going to finish it off. Uh, and then 20 minutes later, you're looking at your at your character sheet going, oh, I didn't actually have an arrow. <laughs> I'd, I'd run out. Um, which thankfully, at least to my knowledge, has rarely happened. But, um, but the fact that you actually have to, A, remember how many things you have, but not necessarily just that. It also plays, at least in my mind, it also plays into encumbrance, which we're going to talk about a bit later on, where it's like, oh, I've got 520 arrows. Uh, this is not Skyrim, people. Like, this is not, you know, you could do that in a video game, but it's not necessarily uh, as real as, as we would like it to have, or, or we'd like it to be in, in D&D. So, yeah, this one is definitely one to keep. Um, and uh, I think it's up to the players. I don't think the DM should be... Uh, needing to deal with any of that. 
only yeah. for only for the the foe, the the enemies you're currently in combat with. Right. Yeah, I, there's a lot of things that I personally leave up to the players. A lot of most of what's on their sheet, unless I think there's something that sounds a little odd. Um, for the most part, I run it by the honor system and hope they look after it. And um, the second one is attunement. Now, the ammunition one we just talked about, a lot of people skip that and don't use it, but I th actually think it's kind of a fun part of the game. Attunement, also quite a number of players don't use this. So this is the idea of attuning to certain certain magical items. You have to attune to them. You have to spend some time and form this bond. And there's rules about how many items you can have. I think actually this just slows the game down. I, I, I've skipped it from the beginning because yeah, it's just, it's, it's not an interesting part of the game to me. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't add anything to the game. Um, the only thing I would do is if a player maybe had three rings, three magic rings, or they're wearing three rings and two magic necklaces, and they've got, you know, they've got one magic helmet on their head and one in their backpack. <laughs> <laughs> um, then I might destroy one of those just for fun. Well, exactly. I mean, I, I agree with you on this one as well, because um, I think I've only ever done this once. I can't think, and, and that was only because in the last few years um, playing with you, is that there was a particular situation where the item that we had was actually a major quest item, and somebody had to attune to it because of whatever the reason was. Um, but that definitely... Uh, it's one of those things that's great for storytelling, not so great for player, you know, experience. So, yeah, I'm I'm a skip on this one. I think this could actually be used, like I said, for for something that's really important. That you have to do this one thing to complete this quest, and if you don't do that thing because you ignore it, uh, you know, there's only so many times a DM can drop hints of what players should be doing. So. <laughs> All right. Um, the next one is cover. So this one, I think a lot of people forget about, um, but it's the fact that creatures and characters can have full three quarters or half cover. So full cover means you can't attack at all unless you have something that like some magical ability or spell that will go around it. Um, three quarters, you get minus five to your hit. And half cover is minus two. So I think it's I think it's realistic, and I I think it's not that hard to remember. Um, you know, minus two and minus five. And I often do this when again dungeon crawling dungeon crawling sort of adventures where say you've got two humans and there's a narrow passageway, and one person saying I shoot you know, the orc further down the passageway. Well, they've got a person in front of them. Uh, the passage is very narrow. With that one, I would probably say half cover. I'd probably take minus two off at least. Um, if it's even more of a tight spot, I would move it to minus five. And this usually comes up, like I say, when things get more congested, which is usually fighting indoors. 
And right. I think it's I think it's a, a good rule, and I think it's easy to do. It doesn't slow the game down. Um, yeah. Uh, I like this one too. And the one thing that I always, it's never really something that you have to decide on or have to really think about. I find that in gameplay, if you're in an environment where there's trees or rocks or you're in a dungeon or whatever, um, or a cave, it just happens normally. Like people say, I'm going to get behind that thing because it's either visible on a map or it's been described well enough where it's like, you're you know you're in a a, a low lying valley. You have trees to your left, rocks to your right, uh, and I th I find that as as a player, uh, if I feel like I need to, then I will I'll say I'm gonna go hide behind that rock. But yeah, but the this is one of those rules that is important to have because um, you're not gonna hide behind a tree that's this wide. You're gonna hide behind one that's you know five feet wide. Mm -hmm. So those kinds of things and especially we are constantly in in your games finding ourselves in in narrow places where somebody wants to lob an arrow or or a firebolt or something and it's like mm -hmm. well sure you could totally do that if you could see the thing you want to hit mm -hmm. well how much can i see oh this much of the shoulder you know it's like oh okay great you've now you know killed the person in front of you oh and he was on your on your in your party so congratulations so yeah, important to, important to have and important to recognize. <laughs> yeah, I think it's um, very useful for the wizard in the party too, or anyone who doesn't have a good armor class. Uh, I think a lot of times you end up hiding behind something if you can. So that that's that's another reason I think to have it and it keeps the game more realistic. I think um, the next rule and this one has always been a debate from kind of the beginnings of Dungeons and Dragons, and uh, this is encumbrance. So there's two general rules in the player's handbook, the regular one and then a, a variant rule. We use the variant rule, which makes it more challenging. And again, for realism, I think it adds to the game, for resource management, doing it properly, being more organized, knowing that you're gonna have to get to a store to buy rope or your arrows or or whatever you need and how much can you carry you know maybe you give extra weight over to the fighter um you know the wizard can't carry very much probably and um once again i have the players track it this one i i do check on once in a while to make sure things are being followed um because treasure is also one of the big issues with fifth edition trying to get lug that all out um yeah. it's different than in first edition when you'd find a treasure chest with twenty thousand gold and somehow <laughs> you would <laughs> you would get that out of the dungeon and a lot of that was because you the only way you gained levels was paying for it by gold right. so you got experience points for gold as well as creatures so this one i like a lot i would keep it i would have the players track I, I like this one as well. I mean, I've always liked the encumbrance rule because as a kid, it was kind of a challenge because you wanted to pick something up and put it in your pocket, but you couldn't mm -hmm. um, like the 20,000 gold. Um, I know that our games, we uh, a couple of them, not every single uh, adventure, but we've had uh, a bag of holding generally. 
And if there's something that we can put in the bag of holding, then we will. And we've got a lot of stuff in the bag of holding. Mm-hmm. Imagine if we lost that. Um, oh, geez. <laughs> I should have said that out loud. But anyway, uh, but yeah, I mean, there's definitely uh, things like the ammunition. You're not going to be carrying 800 weapons like a video game. Like, it's just not going to be a thing. And uh, yeah, it's important because it keeps, you know, uh, scarcity is important. Those kinds of things are important. If you can only have five arrows uh, and you're in a particular situation where you might want to make sure that every shot you take is going to be, you know, fingers crossed, a decent roll. Um it just adds to the challenge. And I and again, when I when there's challenge happening, it adds to the fun and the creativity in my mind. So Yeah, totally. keep it. And I think uh too, the bag of holding, you got you're, you're right that lots of times in my campaigns those show up around you know, 10th level and then usually the higher level parties have them for sure, at least one. But we've also been in circumstances a few times where the bag of holding is full. Because yeah. it has it has yeah. a limit. So you guys, you guys have had that where I think the last time it happened, you might have been away for that session, but they were in a castle with all these bullywugs and they and cultists, and they overran the castle. They found this massive treasure hoard. This is in the dragon um, cult adventure. Right. And they figured out they couldn't store, they found so many coins. They could, couldn't store it in the bag of holding that they had because it was already full. So you know what they did? Buried they it. Buried it. <laughs> and they they plan on they plan on going back to this castle and, and retrieving it. What do you think the chances are that they are going to go back? Rarely. I, I remember we found something like a chest or or some sort of storage thing where. Uh, there was something like t- there were gold pieces. There was like twenty five thousand of. Them. There was a lot of them, mm-hmm. and uh, but we were in the middle, like we were in the dead middle of getting to where we were supposed to go. So I remember we said, "Okay, let's seal up the treasure room, and uh, you know we'll come back for it." And I think we went back once to kind of put something else there, and then I seem to recall there was a cave in or the dungeon collapsed or something collapsed, and we couldn't get back. So we lost all that money. We lost whatever the other items were. Uh, mm-hmm. So that was a bit frustrating. But uh, but you know it's part of the part of the danger of doing that. So if you can't carry it, drop something you don't necessarily need and carry a little bit of whatever you want. But ultimately, again, just adds to the creativity. Like sometimes you're gonna win, sometimes you're gonna lose on those those nice little sort of things you can uh, stumble yeah. across. So. All right. Our next one is food and food and water. So you should be having, I think the minimum is a meal a day, something like that. And what I do actually is I break these into two parts. Um, I think the food is very useful. And again, resource management, making sure that you're, you're, you have to find food somehow or buy rations before you go on an adventure um, but I skip the water part. Keeping track of that, I don't think is necessary. I just basically add. I say it's added into the rations and food. Um, again, for realism, um, I like the way you have to manage that. And sometimes you might have to hunt for food or grab scraps off a dungeon table that the goblins have left. You know, maybe there's 
little piece of cheese or some bread lying on the dungeon floor, and that ends up having to be dinner. Um, sometimes you guys have had to eat a monster or a beast before. Yep. So I like it. I would keep it for sure. I, I would keep this one as well because this is, well, the first thing when I saw your notes, I thought, oh, right, water. I don't remember having my character ever drink water in the entire yeah. history of me playing the game. Um, because I basically, I'd say probably 90% of the meals are rations. So I just assumed there was, you know, something like water in there. Uh, but yeah, it's it's important to have this kind of stuff because... If you run out of food and suddenly you're suffering from malnutrition or you're dehydrated, then, yeah, I mean, those kinds of things can play into the adventure itself. I don't think that there's going to be anything. Nothing like this is going to really hurt the adventure. It's going to maybe hurt the player characters. But, you know, I mean, what if you run across a character who is starving? Like mm -hmm. suddenly it's like you have to care for somebody else there or, yeah. or walk away, which hopefully characters wouldn't do. But, um, but yeah, so these kinds of elements are, they're important to the game and, and you don't have to be, you know, incredibly militaristic about it because, you know, naturally you got to eat, especially when you're playing the game and eating snacks at the same time. It's like your yeah. characters have to eat too. So yeah, and it's a good, you one. make a good point too. the NPC companions or your hirelings, you've, you've got to make sure that they're fed as well. So that's a another good challenge. Um, exactly. Interaction with items. <clears throat> so as part of your action, when you move, you can actually interact with, environment, with items in the environment. Um, a lot of people don't know about this rule, including a lot of players. Um, I did not know this was a thing. I read yeah. it and I'm like, huh? Yeah, so I'll give you an example of things that you can do as part of your movement. This doesn't cost you an action at all. So, um, for example, drawing or sheathing a sword. So I would say this is why I never worry about switching between weapons or <clears throat> we'll talk later, too, about spell casting. Um, yeah. Open or close a door. So you could say there was a you know, a dragon on the other side of the door and your party's running because that's a good idea sometimes. Um, <laughs> you could run, open this closed door, close the door and then keep running as part of what you're doing. Opening the door is not an action. Um, and yeah, actually, so you can open or close, open or close, not, right, not okay. both. Um, you could take a potion out. So that just means you can take it out. Doesn't mean you can use it, but you have it ready. Um, you could pick up something that you dropped, take something quickly off a table, take a ring off your finger, um, tap the floor with a pole, put your ear to a door. So these are examples of things that you can do as part of your action, as part of your, um, movement. And it's not even counted as an action. Now the place people get confused and it's easy to get confused because of the way they've worded this, is that there is an action called use an object. So without using an action, you can interact with objects around you. Using an action, you can take an action called use an object. So the difference is, is basically it's taking more effort and more concentration and more focus 
for the um, action that me that's using an object. So you could, for example, you could pull a lever as part of interacting with your environment. But if you had to hold the lever down for a while, that would you'd have to take the action use an object. Um, you could open a door or close a door as part of your movement. But if you wanted to use the action, uh, use use an, the um, use an object action, you you'd have to to use that. You you could open and close or close and open. Um, you. Yeah, so an object, you normally interact with an object while doing something else, such as when you draw a sword as part of an attack. When an object requires your action for you to use it, then you take the use an object action. It's also useful when you want to interact with more than one object on your turn. So here, again, this version of it is an action. It takes more concentration. Um, it's something that involves more effort, whereas the other ver the other version is just something you're doing quickly, but it doesn't take an action. That's basically the difference. Yeah, I mean and this this rule works. I mean it it yeah. we do this all the time when playing. We're doing those kinds of things without really thinking about them. I'm going to yeah. go through that door and turn around and shoot back or whatever, and it's never really been a huge rule to think about. You don't have to think about it. It, it just is a thing. So, mm -hmm. um, but then you could also, of course, use that rule to do something interesting. So, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to hit that lever once and then I'm going to back up or something. Um, yeah. You know, something really, really uh, simple. Uh, it's a great rule. It needs to, yeah, this is, this is definitely something to keep. Like, this yeah, is not, it's good. Uh, it's something good to remind players, especially new players. Um, they actually have it on the back of one of the Dungeon Master screens. And um, yeah, it's a good rule to remember. It's also useful for the Dungeon Master to remember things that the NPCs and monsters can do. Yeah, exactly. It works both ways. All right, here the next rule is spell casting with semantics. So most spells or many spells um, have semantic component. A lot have, most have verbal components. Um, quite a few have material components. So the semantic one enables the caster to have a free hand to use their components their, for a spell or to do a motion with their arm or their hand. Um, I actually would skip this, and I do, because it would become very complicated for, in my opinion, for me to keep track of, oh, does that wizard have their staff out right now? Oh, um, does that wizard, you know, you know, where what are they using their hands for at the moment? Maybe they're maybe they're holding something and they can't, you know, that you could again, you could interact with an object in your environment and put that down. Um, but if it takes more effort, that would becoming that would become a use in action. Uh, action, use an object action, and then you wouldn't be able to cast a spell. So for me, it's one of those things I would skip and just, to me, it just helps the game move quicker, faster, and it doesn't really add to the game from, from my perspective. 
Well, for me, I suggested <laughs> keeping this rule um, mainly because of the level of realism that players, not the not the game, you know, the game master at all, mm-hmm. but players having to make sure that they understand that they can't pick up three two-handed objects to do something. Um, that the uh, if the spellcaster has a has a wand and has a staff, in theory, you could hold those in each hand. But perhaps there's something about one of those items that needs you to do something else, like maybe you have to tap it or hit it on the floor or something, or you have to have it by both hands. So it's things like that that I find add to the complexity where, uh, because I I think of um, when rules like this get skipped over, uh, sometimes that can give it an unfair advantage to the players over uh, whatever the creatures are they're encountering. but you're right. I mean, that's the other thing. It it would drag the game down if every single action had to evaluate that every single time. Because I think we're pretty good at going, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And then it usually will follow some logic where you're not going to have, you know, I'm going to pick up that huge log and hoist it over my head and then I pick up the bow and I'm going to shoot five arrows. Like that, that's just not going to happen most of the time. Right. And especially if a player tries to do that, the DM goes, um, no, I don't think you can do that, especially when you're upside down in a net, you know, those kinds of things where, Mm -hmm. uh, but again, it's, it's, I say, keep the rule mainly because you could use it for interesting things. But most of the time, I think just naturally people would ignore a rule like this because we're not crazy. (laughs) We're not going to cheat every single round. So yeah. It's just one of those things. I mean, it's kind of like, it's kind of actually, it's kind of like uh, the spell components that we'll be talking about in a little bit. Right. Yeah. And even though I would skip it for, from my perspective, if I've had players, one in particular, I can remember who likes to use it. So in that case, I, I don't mind because um, it's, it's easy for me. They're taking care of it. Um, Exactly. The next rule is spell bonus action. So this is something that, is very confusing and this is this might be the most confusing rule they had the way it was presented because i've seen so many people ask so spell bonus actions so if you cast a spell that has a bonus action the only other spell you can cast after that has to be a cantrip yeah and there are some minor exceptions to this i believe but for the most part, this is true. And I would keep this. I don't think it's that confusing once you finally figured it out. I think it's just worded. It's worded in an awkward manner. Right. So, and, and like our group found this confusing for a while. But once we figured it out, it's not that hard. And um, again, you were talking about, you know, it's sort of, it's becomes game breaking when, you know, spellcasters can cast, you know, spell after spell after spell. Um, so I like it. I'll I'll keep it. This one's a keep because if you remember this is in play and you've done, you know, maybe uh, you've done an action that saved somebody or has done an incredible amount of damage, I'm going to cast Fireball. Aha, that'll kill this character or this creature. And it does a lot of damage, but it doesn't kill them. And the you know if you have a bonus action spell that's done something like that uh you could actually cast a cantrip and finish them off um 
or he or heal somebody if there's a is there a cantrip that can heal i can't even think of that but anyway but the the reason i i like this one is there are so many times where you have held up a little post-it note that says they only had one hit point left <laughs> and you you finish them off now great but you know just the feeling of, of a player being able to go oh i've done that thing oh uh oh, take that you jerk and then you know suddenly it's like oh you've just killed them the vampire's now dead oh Oh yeah, <laughs> you get that, that that rush that that I like. Oh yeah, about the game. <laughs> so it's a keeper, I think, for me anyway. Cool. Um, spell components. So the rule is that spell components, as I said, they have material, semantic, and verbal components. Usually two of those three at least. The material components they give you they give you the examples of what those things are like bat guano and eye of a newt and all those interesting things. The ones that have a price, like a diamond, a thousand gold piece diamond, for example, the rule is that you have to have that item. Uh, It's not just part of what's in your component pouch. The other items, when you buy a component pouch, it's just automatically assumed it's going to be in there. But the ones that have a price, you actually have to find them or purchase them. And I do like this rule. Because it's usually for things like powerful spells like resurrection. And um, I do like it. I, I think it was a good um, addition that they've put in here. I agree as well. Um, I originally said to skip this one because I find that a lot of the time no one uses it. Um, yeah. But I don't play spell casters that often. I've, as as we talked about a few weeks back, um, I'm trying to get into more to, to challenge my my game style uh, to play more spellcasting characters. But that's something that I originally said skip just because I, I find that I don't think it ever gets talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, like if somebody wants to cast Resurrection or something, you definitely need to have components that are going to, to let that spell work. But for other spells, like the general spells that people use quite often... Um, it I, I think it just gets forgotten because yeah, we buy a component pouch or something like that and we, you know, just assume we have it. But if you get some unique spells that don't get used that often and it's like, Oh, I like that spell. I haven't used that in years. Oh, it's a really good spell. Did you pay attention to what the components were? Probably not. Mm-hmm. So you kinda you know and it again it adds to the gameplay uh, adventure. It's like, oh, have you got some back guano? Uh oh crap I don't have any. Mm-hmm. Well you know there's no bats around here but uh, so what are you gonna it it kind of forces the player to go how likely am I going to find X Y and Z in order to be able to use that particular spell mm-hmm. and I think that just adds to the challenge and I and I kind of and I like that kind of stuff so I changed it to keep on this one oh nice so yeah I it, think it, and it is for spells that are more powerful and more unusual for the most part I think. Most of the regular yeah. spells don't have this price on their material components. Um, I also like, as an aside, I also like using the material components in the description of the creature or NPC using the spell. I do that more and more. Um, nice. I actually picked it up from the player in our group who usually plays spellcasters because she al- she always does that. She always describes... Um, all the material components she's using in different ways to to do the spell. I think that's a great idea. So I, I do that as well now. 
All right, That's our last one. rule we're gonna look at are underwater rules, which I added at the last minute because um, I remembered how ridiculous they are. And I'll give you an example. All right. So it says that when you're making a melee attack, a creature that doesn't have a swimming speed, either natural or granted by magic, has disadvantage on the attack roll unless the weapon is a dagger, javelin, short sword, spear, or trident. So the reason that makes no sense at all is that say you got a ring of swimming that has a swimming speed, okay? okay. And you're underwater and you're fighting a Sahagwin or something, right? That right. means that because you have the swimming speed now, or maybe your character is just a water gansai like the one in our Greyhawk campaign, if you had a somehow you got a, a maul under there or a warhammer, you can now use that as if you were out of the water. Or if you like, it just makes no sense. Yeah, or if it's, you had. It's like they attached it just to the swimming speed. Is that the only metric that we're going by? Yeah. And um, if yeah, you have okay. a that range... That doesn't make sense what, then. Yeah, if you have a... And it does make sense when you're underwater that like a spear, um, those weapons, short sword, dagger, javelin, trident, those all make sense that you could use those underwater effectively, right? Because yeah. they are used underwater. Uh, the range weapon attack misses automatically misses beyond the weapon's normal range so and even against a target with the normal range the attack will have disadvantage unless it's a crossbow net or weapon that's thrown like a javelin so that makes a little bit more sense but it's still saying you can shoot an arrow with a bow underwater which yeah no that wouldn't work at all you can't do a crossbow, yeah, certain kind of crossbow. Crossbows can work, right? Those are, I mean, that's what some of those shark guns are like. I mean, I'm from I'm from shark territory in Cape Town. Yeah. Um, the you can have those sort of weapons underwater, but there's a lot of things about that that doesn't make sense. And I know a lot of people have just made up their own rules, and most people just skip it. Um and I would skip what they've done here, and I would just try to be more realistic. And one other thing, too, is casting spells. In the past, I've let casters cast spells underwater, but I believe the actual rule is that you can cast one spell because you, you can open your mouth one time. <laughs> but guess what happens when you open your mouth? Yeah, exactly. You're now... I mean, your body's now filling with water and yeah, you ha you get that one spell off, but now you're in trouble. And that, and that's the thing is that these, this rule just needs to be rewritten because it, it should be focusing on, um, forget the movement because that, that, that metric confuses me, uh, why they would attribute that to whether or not you could swing a sword. I think there's an entirely yeah. different metric in terms of bladed weapons uh, 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 weapons that can actually fly through the water, i.e. a javelin or something. But they would have some sort of disadvantage because they wouldn't necessarily, you couldn't throw as hard as you could or you couldn't 
uh, swing your sword or jab your sword uh, as fast as you would out of the water. Um, unless you have some kind of, like if you're a water Gensai, maybe you have some ability to counteract that or something. Um, whether it's a magical thing or whether it's just out of skill. Mm-hmm. But um, that kind of thing, I would say, almost requires like key points or something, like underwater points or something like that, where um, you are able to focus for this one attack using this thing. Um, but yeah, but for spellcasters, you are now drowning because yeah. you, had, you use a spell that requires you to vocalize something. Uh, so yeah, I mean, don't you think some just don't make sense at all? Like, how can you shoot a bow underwater? Well, exactly, and that's that's the thing is that you would have to have, I don't know, like a a a manta ray cloak for your weapon or something. But even that doesn't make sense because it's like, okay, well, the manta ray thing. I always sort of imagine it as there's some sort of bubble feature around your uh, mouth or something to be able to breathe. Uh, and allows you to move really fast, but that would make no sense because if you bubble around, say your your bow, you're still shooting into water, and that's you know the arrow hitting a water hitting water is not going to necessarily travel where you want it to go, uh, or travel that far. So yeah, I think I think I I did say skip on this one, and my note was what Andrew said, because <laughs> that's pretty much it it. it doesn't make any sense whatsoever in terms of reality. But we're in a game, so maybe there's something that could be done to make it make more sense. But it's it's ultimately it's not going to make full logic. Uh, so yeah, skip this one. <laughs> it's yeah. it's not. I think useful I think we have to put that in one of our books for sure. Coming up. Yeah, I mean this is this is something that. Uh, one D and D or whatever that becomes uh, could have, uh, you know, they're focusing on a bunch of stuff that I don't think is important. Uh, stuff like this. If you're a player and you're like, I'm going to launch a fireball underwater. And you're like, how? Yeah. So... yeah, you're right. Skip about changing race, uh, the name race to something else just because of yeah. some political banter uh virtue signaling and here's a real rule that needs to get changed yeah because this one actually could be quite a sizable rule as well because there's so many there's so many things that are just popping into my mind well what about that what about oh hey yeah uh fire-based things like if you're like a fire gensai and you're swimming underwater what kind of disadvantages are you gonna have um i'm sorry you can't shoot firebolt under your can trip because you're underwater but what am i yeah, gonna do? They do have, i don't know get a dagger yeah they do have <laughs> one last sentence there they add about fire it says creatures and objects that are fully immersed in water have resistance to fire damage so oh even better i mean yeah little little tidbits like that are actually kind of important so yeah yeah even resistance wouldn't they just have immunity well, you see, that's the thing is that I said fireball earlier, but mm. I'm thinking about it now going, even if you could shoot a fireball underwater, like how far would it get? And if it exploded, would it actually explode? Like what is the mechanism for a fireball to, to create that blast mm. to 
you know, which people love so much. It's like, I'm going to cast Fireball, and it does a lot yeah. of damage. But underwater, is it just going to be like this little fizzle, and then nothing yeah. happens? Or will something actually fly through the water and, I don't know, maybe have some sort of concussive quality to it or something? But again, if it's called Fireball, I would be leaning towards, yeah, that doesn't work underwater. Sorry. Yeah, or you could do something. This sort of reminds me of what Chris Perkins, he has actually a good rule, I think, for water where people people asked him what happens with falling damage into water. And I'm pretty sure it's Chris Perkins um, who said he just takes half half the damage. So if they land in water, it's only half the damage. As, But I think that also would depend on how high you're falling from. That's that's sort of what I would think. Water from a great height, it's not a good thing. <laughs> no, it, it it'll act like concrete the yeah. more than uh, concrete would because yeah, I mean, I I used to teach swimming and I was a lifeguard for a long time and that definitely was, uh, part of part of you know the just natural training of it. Like, what kind of damage could you do to your body if you fell from this? Even if you did certain positions where you hit the water and you might you know, take less damage, but yeah, yeah, that yeah. Oh, <laughs> there's got to be an entire book just on the rules of falling into water in D and D. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. Yeah. All right. So that's our short book on what rules you might want to skip or not skip. And I'm sure there's plenty more. I mean, I thought of a bunch, but I cheated and just went with yours, <laughs> but there's definitely other rules that, are very, I would say, that are used or ignored quite regularly that just because of how people like, you know, they want that smooth gameplay. Yeah. But then coming across something like um, like the uh, spell components or the, you know, the semantics and whatnot, like having, like, I'm going to cast this, and if the DM is, you know, maybe they're kind of wondering, how many blah blah blahs do they really have? Oh, uh, you know, it do you have the component for that? Oh, actually, I I never thought of that. Well, you ran out, <laughs> and it's suddenly like, oh, okay. Uh, then they have to come up with a new plan or get pummeled or something. Like in that case, you know, does the spell fizzle because they didn't have the right component or like those kinds of things? I just they're hard to implement, but I like them because they add to that level of challenge and. That's kind of, you know, that's kind of what the game's all about because, you know, it's just a game. <laughs> <laughs> it's going on a t-shirt. It, 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 it should. That's actually not a bad idea. Well, any final words before we wrap it up today? Uh, is there any uh, last moment, a uh, few thoughts about the Kickstarter maybe you forgot or? Um... Not really. I should say, you know, the other thing that we're not only working on, we're getting out the current Kickstarter, we're getting the next Kickstarter ready to go. And hopefully, like I said, about probably a month or so. Um, we're also working on two other Kickstarters, which we hope to do this year, probably in June and October, depending on how things go. And um yeah, I've been talking to the artist about another series of books we might be starting. And uh, we have the World of Mirror book too we'd like to do, which is an update on the books we've already done for that world, but putting nice. all nine continents in one book. 
So very cool. Yeah. So there's lots to do. That's going to be a huge job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because I know there's continents that we've been to that I don't think you've actually, you know, done a full book on yet. That's if true. If I remember correctly. Yes, that's true. <laughs> Yes. Well, thank you, everybody, for watching. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, all of the stuff will be down there in the doobly-doo. Um, we love doing this, and we're we're seeing uh, some numbers going up, which is kind of nice. Makes us feel better about things because, you know, this is hard work. Hours of preparation every week that he does. But uh, we'll see you all next week. Thank you, everybody, and uh, bye for now. Later. <laughs>